Hey, welcome to Athlete on Fire. I'm Scott Jones, your host, and today you guys are going to be joined with myself and an awesome entrepreneur out of the UK. Uh, I don't know how we got connected. Oh, actually, I just remembered. Um, one of our—I literally just remembered one of our old guests, uh, Luke Tybersky, who did the Ultimate Triathlon, introduced me to this this gentleman. He's got a an interesting startup uh, company in the world of nutrition, and I'll call it, uh, you know race-ready supplementation, but it's actually food. It's pretty cool. We're going to talk about that a little bit, but he's an athlete as well, so we're going to dive into that. Before we do that, though, this is the first time you guys have ever joined us. Athlete on Fire is all about bridging the gap between amazing athletes, adventurers, and entrepreneurs, and the rest of us. And we do that with, with some stories. We do it with resources. And we just try to, to tap into what these people are doing and how, how they're getting it done. And hopefully, over the you know over the last two years, we have over 300 podcasts on, on the show you will be able to tap into something, learn something that's of interest to you, and, and, and maybe make your life a little more exciting, a little more interesting. So without further ado, before we get started, go to athleonfire.com. You can learn all about the past shows. You can go browse the podcasts, any of our resources, any of our trainings. They're all on the site. Uh, our guest today is Warren Pohl. Warren, how are you doing? I am doing great, Scott. That was an introduction on fire by the sounds of it. You, uh, you motored through that. Man, you know, I used to... I actually, this is funny. I probably a week ago, I was kind of curious, and I, I'm not, I'm not like an analytical guy in a traditional sense. Like I like to see how numbers are improving and what I, what we can do to make things better for the podcast. But I was kind of curious what I sounded like in the beginning, so I made the big mistake of going back and listening to a couple of the first shows. And I swear to goodness, I could see myself reading off of a piece of paper, and uh, I think I, I think I vomited in my mouth a little bit, and then I kept going. But still, I had awesome guests, and the content was good. I, I know the subject matter, but I was so nervous to get on air that I wanted yeah. it to be perfect. But anymore, if I get your name right, then uh, then I'm batting a thousand. You know, like let's just get close to the name. You 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 got the name right. You you've got the country right. You you got all of that stuff right, and you even got you're quite right. It was the uh, the connection came through uh, through our mutual friend. Luke Taberski. Um but yeah, li- I mean, listening to your own voice always a very weird thing. So, uh, <laughs> but the other thing is, uh, if you don't start, you're never going to get anywhere, and no one's perfect out of the gate. But you can never let that stop you. You know that that will stop people, whether it's they want to take on a hundred miler or run their first ten k. If they think they can't do it, well, you know, you never will. So uh, you've all got to start, and it's generally never pretty when we do. But who cares? Because you don't go anywhere unless you do that. No, I, I agree. You know what? You know what my voice is now. It's a character that I. It's like a video game character that I can kind of control. <laughs> At first, it was this like self-conscious, weird thing that you would just hear. Um, but I've heard it so much now in the editing room that uh, it's just this little character that I get to push around. So it's kind of fun. And you have naturally a good radio voice i don't know if it's a uk thing you guys just kill us and sounding cool um i'm told that a lot of american voices sound kind of nasally to you guys is that true yeah it's true if we were to do a cliched american accent we'd we'd go a bit more nasal but uh no i i think there's a there is a difference if you watch um the news in, in the u.s and there's been a disaster then Every single bystander appears to have been prepped for TV. Um, you know, you're just a country that's grown up on TV, you're used to being on it, and you take to it naturally. And the whole world is sort of getting more used to this now with, uh, with the rise of social media. In the UK, I think we're a bit more on, on the back foot on that, that front. We can be anyway. Um, for my own personal uh, side of things, 
I was fortunate enough to spend 10 years on and off presenting TV during my career as a journalist. So I've had enough chance to see what I look like and see how terrible I sounded and make it slightly less terrible with a bit of practice over the years. <laughs> That's going to be one of our themes. So we, we, we have a handful of things to cover. Of course, I want to talk about the product because it's, it's, uh, it's very apropos for the, the audience. Um, I've tried it. It's really tastes good, which is rare. I've had people send stuff to me for the show that tastes like poo and uh, <laughs> your, your stuff actually tastes good, which is number one for me. I, I don't eat stuff that doesn't taste good. So we'll talk about that, but I'd love to talk about your, your background as, as a journalist, as you said, um, some of your athletic endeavors, you've, you've done some pretty, pretty cool stuff. Um, so let's kind of, let's just go from a career, st- you know, let's go from a childhood standpoint. Uh, were you an active kid growing up? What what were you interested in? What, what did you um, gravitate towards as as a youngster? As a kid, it was uh, skateboards, BMXs, and uh, motorcycles. All of them on an obsessive level, uh, and all of them to the grave disappointment of my parents. <laughs> so how do you? How did you get? Was it skateboards first, and then motorized stuff? How, how did you get into it? Well, so the, the, the motorbike obsession came uh, as one of my first words was motorbike when I found out what it was because the guy next door to the house where, uh, where I grew up, was uh, he had a, a scooter and I was obsessed with it for no, no reason. I saw it, I was obsessed, that's it, I was two. Um, and it, it wouldn't be until I was uh, 18 that I managed to scrape together enough money to go against my parents' wishes and buy my first motorbike. Uh, but that, that led me to my career as a journalist. Um, but if we just fill in the blanks before that, uh, in the meantime, uh, skateboarding and BMXs grew out of just mucking around on bicycles and go-karts as a kid uh, and moving on to those. And just that, that seemed to be, for me, where the most fun was. In terms of uh, official sport, then I was not a distance runner at all, but I, I did run the 800 meters through school um, and I did the high jump uh, and I played rugby for my school and my university. Um, but, but then I left, I left university and of course, um, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a healthy diet and I was still smoking back then and I like to drink too much. And, um, because I have a natural, I don't put on weight naturally. Um, by the time I got to 31, 32, I still looked uh, and fit into the same clothes as when I was 18, but I was a, a physical wreck and, and none of that was helped by the number of motorcycles I had by then fallen off because uh, my uh, my career in journalism, I, I wasn't interested in being a journalist to start with. Um, I was obsessed with motorbikes. And motorcycle journalism looked like the key to the promised land. You got to ride all the best bikes all over the world and you got paid to do it. Um, but in order to get that job, you have to say, I am terribly interested in journalism and I love motorbikes. So I said that and I... I got a job and I realized as that process went on that I loved journalism. So um, when it came for time for a change, after I'd done, I don't know, what did I do, seven or eight years of motorcycle journalism, I literally lived a lifetime's obsession. I did three or four years of racing at national level in the UK. I tested bikes all over the place. I met people here, there, and everywhere. I met pretty much all of my heroes. Um, And then I, I came out of that, and this sort of combines with that, early 30s time and I just realized my I thought I was fit and I wasn't and it, and it was really time it was time for change and instead of laughing at my friends who were doing triathlon or marathons 
which I now realize with hindsight, I was laughing at them because I was scared that if I had to put myself on the line, I would discover what a wreck I'd become. Um, it was time to do something about that, and my hand was forced. I went from zero to 100 by entering the Marathon de Saab, having never run more than 10K in my life. <laughs> so you entered the Marathon de Saab for, as your first event? Uh, I did, yes. That, that was exactly it. And I, I literally could not have run for a bus at the time. I had back pain that kept me awake at night. My knees were not good. My ankles were not good. Um, the doctors had ordered me off what little running I was doing. Um, but the Marathon de Saab comes with a big wait list. I had two years to wait. Yeah. So I figured there is one year to see if I can actually get my body back into running again. And uh, there's another year to see if I can actually go from shuffling 5K laps of the park once a month yeah. to, uh, to running 50 miles in a hit and doing five, five back-to-back marathons or whatever it was. Um, let, and there, let me sorry, ask you a question really quick. So I'm, I'm thinking about mm. the motorcycling thing. And, and, or, mm. um, you know, I picture a lot of the elite guys that you see on X Games and, and, and that, type, that style of riding. And a lot of these guys are really fit. They're really strong. Um, mm. So how are you doing that at a high level? Was it normal to be in the shape that you were in? Were you an anomaly? Like, Explain your situation there a little bit better. So the, the racing I was doing, it was circuit racing. Um, so it wasn't uh, acrobatic. Okay. Um, and effectively, we, we're talking national level in the UK, which is one step below the major championship level in the UK. So if you moved up to that top level in the UK – that's where the fitness is going to really start coming in. But I think at the level I was at, I mean, a race is 20, 25 minutes. A qualifying session is maybe half an hour. You've got two of those. You could do testing days. Uh, people have this expression about being bike fit. I mean, I think compared to the average rider in the paddock, I was probably a bit fitter in that I did actually try and run or swim occasionally. Um, and I didn't smoke on race day. <laughs> but, you know, or at least not until the race was over. Um, I wouldn't drink before a race. That was considered preparation. So, no, I was definitely fit enough to do what I was doing. But there is no doubt that if I had the fitness now, uh, it would be very different. That said, uh, I haven't ridden a bike in anger on a circuit in probably, I think, eight years. I'd be so far off the pace now, it would be embarrassing. Are your, are your parents glad that, are your parents still around, first of all? They are, absolutely. Yeah, they are. Are they are they relieved that you're out of the the biking world? I I think they are, but I think I think they really came to accept it. It was such a part of my life for so long, and it and it sort of it created the the beginnings of the path that allowed me to do what I've done, what I do now, and what I've done ever since. Because otherwise, I would have left school, and you know, I, I went lucky. I went to a good school. Uh, I went to a good university. And the career path for most of us, if you go through that sort of route, you know, you're into pretty standard management jobs in good companies. And by the time you're 25 or 30, you're getting paid very well. And the idea that you don't like it, um, well, actually, if you want to change that, you're going to have to cut your salary in half or worse. Whereas I never really earned a huge amount of money. I had an amazing time. And I learned that I could do, you know, life didn't have to be the way you thought it had been planned out. Um, so the fact that the motorcycles provided so much and that fortunately, touch wood, I, I was able to walk away from it in reasonable shape. Um, I think my parents are, are, are pretty happy with that, but they also credit it with 
with what it what it allowed me to do and the the view of life it, it allowed me to start to develop. So let's go. So we'll go chronological a bit here. So you're in journalism. Uh, you said you started writing because you wanted to to write about motorcycles, um, and then you you kind of fell in love with with journalism. So what did your career? Where where did it take you? What kind of journalism did you did you do? What were some interesting um, maybe peaks and valleys from that career in, in a few minutes? Ooh. That would be interesting. Yeah, no, I give that. So the, um, I mean, the motorcycle thing was was definitely a peak. That was that was my dream, and you know, I devoured motorcycle magazines, and there I was, riding wonderful bikes all over the world, um, meeting great people, having a wonderful time, getting to go racing on someone else's ticket because, you know, various people got publicity from it, and I they'd also gave me a, a step up into TV because it was a nice niche that I could start to work into. Uh, I actually even had my own series on Discovery at one point. I think that was in 2006. May even still be available somewhere in Eastern Europe. But uh, that was then. Um, uh, carrying on with the the writing and, and that sort of TV skill set. High points from there. After motorcycles, I moved into mainstream writing for all of the newspapers in the UK, picking on random features that that, uh, that I was interested in. So I traveled to uh, Eastern Europe on the trail of uh, illicit growth hormone, which was very, very interesting. Yeah, I, bet. Um, I I spent three weeks driving a brand new Rolls Royce around South America on the route of the what is now where they moved the Paris Dakar rally to, which was an insane job. I took a um, a smart car to the Arctic up on the ice roads where the ice road truckers are. We drove to the most northerly point. When it's all iced over, you can get to a place called Tuktoyaktuk, which is as far north as you can drive a vehicle, as long as the Arctic Ocean's frozen. And, um, yeah, we, we got up there. Um, I was, I mean, I went to Mongolia. I, I've traveled to so many places and, and saw so many things. And journalism gives you that excuse to, to ask a question. You've got a reason to be there, a reason to interact. And, the the experiences it gave were literally literally priceless and and we could fill a show with them but i know uh hearing someone drone on about what they did at work might not quite be what people signed up for here so <laughs> hey, I, i'll like cut it, it was amazing I'll, I'll cut it short there and come straight to the valley which is uh paid content on that model essentially doesn't exist anymore i got very very good and reached the top of a game to discover that the top didn't exist yeah. Uh, it, it had gone. So whereas before you could expect to earn a reasonable living doing what I did uh, and, you know, uh, a reasonable ongoing living, the only thing I could face when I got there sticking with that model of someone commissions you a story or a TV show, you execute it and you come back, all I could face was um, reduced rates or, the only, you know, jobs were, magazines were closing down, newspapers were closing down. Uh, sections were closing down, rates were going down. It's like this is not in any shape or form a, a sustainable future. So I'd had an amazing time. I was qualified for nothing else, but I was effectively on a hiding to nothing doing what I did. And if I wanted to keep the lights on and keep paying the mortgage, it was time to come up with something else. And, and how long ago was that? So I reckon the real crunch, I probably felt it six years ago. That there was really, you know, this was not, this was not going to get better. In the world of traditional journalism, things were not going to get better. So, I needed to be doing something else, and that's when I started thinking. I, I wonder what something else might be. 
Do you, do you think this whole shift in journalism has created um, more average writers or or writers that would have never gotten into it because the way that content is kind of uh, taken up these days? You know, you know what I mean. I, I think a lot of people are are writing that w- would have never even tried before. You know. Uh- at the same time, are the people who were doing it professionally like yourself, have they stopped um, perfecting that craft to not get to the, the level that, that you know people did in the past as, as writers? Well, I've, I think that that's a really interesting point you bring up there, and it, it hits the nail on the head in a lot of places because the key thing about journalism is it isn't actually that difficult. Um, the hardest thing is getting paid to do it. Uh, it requires a basic skill set which you either possess or you don't. And what the internet and the rise of you know blogs and, and other sites has proved beyond a doubt is that a lot of people possess the ability to do that. There's now a lot more variety of really good writing out there and people's ability to write in a um, casual fashion. And I don't mean that in a sloppy fashion. I mean that in a readable, engaging, interesting, relevant fashion for their audience rather than a sort of prescriptive, you know, imagine the times in 50 years ago, it, it, didn't, it didn't invite your comment. It didn't invite your or reflect your world. It told you what was happening. Um, and the, they're two very different things. So I think then far more people are able to do that. And as for the paid writers, uh, with the exception of a very small number still uh, clinging to those last few life rafts, leaving the Titanic of journalism as we knew it. Um, it's a question of adapt or die, uh, however that adaption may be. So uh, the the world is changing fast and, and you need to change with it or, or do something about it. Absolutely. Okay, so, so you saw the change coming. Uh, how did your life change uh, when you kind of realized that this this summit did not contain a future for you? Um, that, that was a tough time. It was, I, I can distinctly remember sitting at my desk with a horrible feeling in my stomach because I just did the basic maths of what was coming in in the next six months, what was maybe going to come in and what was definitely going to go out in terms of finances. I'm like, this is, you know, this doesn't balance. It's not even close. Uh, and there was just this horrible feeling that I backed the wrong horse because I had this feeling when I started in journalism that, well, Hey, you know, I will meet interesting people. I don't know where this whole motorcycle thing is going to take me, but it will take me somewhere. And that had, until then, it had been a wonderful ride, literally in every sense. Uh, and I would not change a minute of it. But it was a sick, pretty sickening day when I really had to face the facts that there wasn't a future in in what I thought there had been. And it was now time to start start looking for something else. Is it is this when you were starting to run? Is this when the uh, marathon de Sable was coming up? When was all that happening? Exactly the same time. Okay. Exactly the same time. I mean, not not connected, but two things that happened together at, at very good times. And I would say, on a most simple level, as I went through the transition, um, and you know, none of us are ever finished as products, so we're all transitioning the whole time. But as that big swing went, uh, you know, from writing to something else. Uh, running was something that was essential to maintain my, just my overall sense of well-being and, and, and self-esteem, to be honest. Um, you know, when, when certain parts of your life are not going well, to have something else that is or is that is involving you and distracting you, and in my case it became endurance sport, 
super valuable. That that helped me through that so well. Nice. And, and I think, you know, a lot of this audience are endurance athletes and, and I think people get it. Like going through going through a tough time or a transitional time, like just being able to put your body um, through the gamut and experience things physically helps you so much mentally, of course. We all know that. Um, yeah. I, I think definitely your story lends to that. Let, let's talk really quick. Let's talk about that Marathon de Saab experience. Um, I know you've done tons of other events, uh, but going over any event could take a whole show. But let, let's hear about that first yeah. experience because you signed up for it. You told us a few minutes ago that you'd never run more than a 10K when you signed up for it. Um, were you lit, was this at gunpoint? Were you, did you, sign, <laughs> did you sign up at gunpoint? What happened? Neither at gunpoint or drunk. Um, <laughs> through, through, um, terrible disillusionment or, or self disillusionment. I, when I did manage my shambling runs around the local park once a month and give myself, I was still in shape like I used to be at university. Um, I had this idea as I was shuffling on, I'm like, Hey, I, this just feels like an all day pace. And I don't know where that idea came from because I never knew. I didn't even know about ultramarathons then. And 20 minutes later, it would be clear it wasn't even an all-hour pace at, at that stage in my game. But um, I'd, I'd then become aware of the Marathon de Saab. And uh, clearly, you know, at that point, there had still been some work. So there was some money at the bank at the time I signed up because that is not a cheap race by, by any stretch of the imagination. It's a, it's a life experience, but it's not, not a cheap race. What's it cost, um, Warren? Just out of curiosity. I'm thinking the tag was around two and a half thousand pounds, which is about four thousand dollars. And this was when I signed up in two thousand and seven, uh, and I'd paid the balance of it by the time I realised things were really going south in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. So I might as well have gone. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was paid. You know, there was there was no refund. Um, but yeah, it was about. I think it's a bit more now. Uh, as with all these things, they keep going up, but. Uh, so it was a friend of mine. He said, Hey, I've, uh, I'm signing up for the marathon to Saab. Are, are you in? And I just said, well, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll pay the deposits, get us in. You pay me back. Let's get going. So I didn't have time to think about it. I said, yes. And we were in and another friend signed up with us. And, uh, in co- course of time, both of them dropped out before the, you know, within six months. And, uh, that was it. I was off to run the marathon to Saab on my own. Nice. So what was you – know, ha- I've had a lot of guests that have done, done this event before. But what when you were going into it, like we don't have to talk about the training, but let's talk about like the day of the event. Can you take us back and like just tell us how overwhelming it was? Give us some stats for people who, who aren't familiar with the event um, on the distance and, and, and what entails the event. And then how did you do? So it, it's uh, – the Marathon de Saab is – I think it's 156 miles over six days – through the Sahara Desert, uh, one of, if not the hottest places on Earth. Um, and so it, it calls itself the world's toughest foot race, which is, uh, I mean, it is difficult, no stretch about it. And, and winning or performing to your best in it is incredibly hard, but it's not the world's toughest foot race. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but I, I was so, I would call it overprepared, but I couldn't be any other way because... Uh, I, I had no experience to go on. Everything was new. So I'm, I'm on the start line. You have to carry all of your food and equipment throughout the race. The only thing they provide is a daily water ration, which you get at the checkpoints. And they also provide basically a, an eight-man Berber tent, which is effectively a large blanket on sticks 
for you to uh, to sleep under every night. So you're carrying sleeping mat, cooking equipment, food for the whole race. Um, if basically if it's not in your pack at the start line, you don't have it until you're you're finished. Um, that makes so me this... really quick. So, so was the cost for permitting? I'm assuming. The what? Sorry. Was the bulk of the cost for permits? Um, I don't know. I, I, I mean, bear in mind. I think the bulk of the cost is. I, Pretty sure that included airfare out to Morocco. You've got a night or two in a hotel before the race starts. You've got a night in a hotel on the way back. You've got a flight back home. Uh, the race itself, all of the logistics. I don't know what their permit arrangements are in the Sahara, but it's it's the entire show. You know, you're not just standing up on the start line. It's getting you to the start line. It's putting you up beforehand. Um, it, it's everything. Cool. Yeah, I'm just curious. Okay, so you're you've got pretty much everything on your person. You're towing the start line. You you feel like you're over prepared, um, and then I keep interrupting you. Continue. <laughs> That's exactly what you're here to do. That's how you elicit the responses, right? Otherwise, right. you're just rambling about crap. So um, <laughs> no, it, it's uh, yeah. I'm on the start line, and I'm, I'm definitely nervous, but I feel all right. Physically, I'm nervous in terms of the kit. I I, I think I've. I've got what I need and I just, I set off steady and uh, with hindsight uh, and the benefit of a lot more ultra running behind me now, I would say I probably set off too steady uh, and maybe was too steady throughout the entire event, but my goal was finishing and I wanted to finish in one piece and you know, the, the dropout rate is reasonable and the sand can rip your feet to pieces. And on top of that, there's a, the distances are not spaced evenly in the Marathon de Saab. So what they do, uh, day four, day four is the long day. So um, in our case, it was the longest day they'd ever done during the race. I think it was 93 kilometers, if I remember. So a little over 55 miles. And, uh, you know, I'd never run more than 50, let alone after three back-to-back marathons. Um and you've got to get through this night stage, and, and that's an experience on its own. They beam a laser uh, across the sky of the desert um, cool. between the last two checkpoints. You've got this green laser going above your head, something to follow. And if you, you can either sleep overnight during that stage if you want to on the way because you're carrying everything, or you can do the stage in one hit, and any time you gain in camp of, out of the total 48 hours is obviously all your own to, to lie down and sleep and relax. And then you finish up with what was, I think, about 13 miles on the last day. Nice. How cool is that? Big old green streak through the sky. Uh, one, another one of those pinch yourself moments. If I wasn't so busy staring at my feet and feeling awful, um, <laughs> you know how it goes when you're doing things like that. Yeah, you know, you're staggering through the Sahara. Uh, you're not on your own because, you know, 50 meters ahead there's someone, 100 meters behind there's someone. But you're staggering through the Sahara under a clear sky with some stars and a big green uh, laser. Uh, it's it's pretty special. Well, I, I know you've run a lot of ultras since that one, but since that was probably one of the more formative uh, endurance events of your life, what what was one thing that you took away that you learned learned about yourself um, after that one that you, that you might not have known before? Um, I think there were two, and the the basic one was, uh, I think I can do this. Um, you know, I, I clearly was able to uh, persevere and keep going and, and deal with feeling pretty horrible and, and ride that through until I started feeling good again. So that was the first window into the fact that 
not only could this be something I could do, it was something that I actually enjoyed. Um, but the biggest take home was, and uh, as I approached coming into the finish line, it, it all became clear that it wasn't a finish line at all. And I, I'm sure you'll have heard other people say this in, in similar situations. It was throughout the training and the two years and, you know, I'd, I'd stopped drinking. I had changed my diet, not radically, but I, I was now training more regularly. I would not drink when I went out with people at the weekends because I was running on a Sunday. Um, and a lot of people give you a lot of grief for that, uh, or they can do in a joking way. And in on my own joking way back, I'd be like, yeah, after the race, it'll be all different. We'll go out for a few beers. And I got to the end of that race. I'm like, hang on. I feel better than I have done in 10 years. I feel physically better than I have done probably since my early 20s. Um, I feel amazing. Why would I want to give this up? I want more of this. Why would I, why would I ever go back to wrecking myself every Saturday night and you know, not being able to get out of bed. It made no sense at all, but I had to get to the finish line before I realized that the finish line was in fact a, a start line of, of, you know, another chapter. Yeah. I love that. And you know, we work on this project called becoming ultra and, uh, Jules, Julia Sintes, who was our subject. She, she'd never run more than a half marathon. She finishes 50 K up in Aspen last summer. And, uh, it was a brutal 50K for a first 50K. You know how you, you picked a pretty brutal I one. saw the video. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was just it was really, really neat. And and we were, you know, we're hanging out, having beers and just talking about it. And uh, the the concept, the idea of the, that finish line actually being the start of a new person. Like you've learned and you've trained and you've pushed yourself in so many different ways that you come out differently. And that's why people are drawn to athletics. And that's why um, the mission Athlete on Fire is just to empower people to realize that every single person – is an athlete. It's we're all at different levels, but we all are athletes, and we can learn from those experiences. And it's really cool. Um, I appreciate you sharing the story about uh, Marathon de Saab. Uh, you ha you have so many things that we could go over. I, I think what I want to do right now is go through some of the housekeeping, if you will, and then I want to talk about the company that you started based on your ultra running um, and having some issues with your with your gut, which I've had some issues with my stomach as well on long treks and, and endurance events. So. First of all, I love quotes. I love getting mantras and, and knowing what inspires people. Because when you get out there, whether it's a team sport and you're standing at the free throw line or you're about to you know, kick a free kick or you're running in the middle of nowhere for hours, it's good to, to draw back on other people's words. So what's a good quote that you like to kind of draw back on? So uh, I, I said I was going to give you two. I, I might actually go with, go with three because there, there, are, there are too many. And I certainly find... Uh, both in the, you know, when you need to self-motivate for endurance or when you need to self-motivate for business in your startup. Um, and, you, you know, in both, you're going to be in some very dark places quite often, as, as anyone who's done either will know. Um, you need these sort of little little tokens and, and touchstones of motivation. So first one, this comes from, this one is, the source is anonymous. No one knows who it's from, but it, it's, uh, it's used by the Pathfinder Regiment who, one of the founding regiments of the British Special Forces. And um, it just goes like this. It's, happiness shall always be found by those who dare and persevere. Wanderer, do not turn around, march on, and have no fear. Love it. And you have to send me that and, one so I can uh, get it on the, on the show notes because that, that, that one's too long for me to write down, but definitely shoot that over. No, right. that, that's fine. I'll, I'll send it over. The... Uh, 
There's another really simple one which which may have cropped up before, but this has got me through more than one or two very sticky endurance races, literally chanted like a mantra under my breath, and it's Winston Churchill's never, 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 never give up. Yeah, I love that one. It's as simple as that. Uh, but I've literally chanted every outbreath is a never, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> it gets longer and longer the bigger the hill gets or the, the longer the climb or whatever. But uh, that, that one's in there. And then the last one, where does it go? Henry David Thoreau, never look back unless you're planning to go that way. So how often do you look back? <laughs> never and unless I'm riding a motorcycle or a bicycle and there's you know you're changing lanes you do need to look back at that point but generally no it, it, so we have done. we have our uh, public service announcement for uh, th- uh, a throw quote um, never look back unless yeah. and then you have yeah <laughs> you have a car coming up your <laughs> rear end alright so I, I love I love those quotes we'll put those on the show show notes for sure uh, I, I also love when when guests can share something tactile something real that has to do with health fitness training a challenge something physical that people can go give a shot do you have something for them yeah I do and uh, uh- this is either going to be it's going to have been picked loads of times or it's going to be completely left field because the physical challenge I want to set people um, is it's a mental challenge and it, it, it is physical but it's different and it's it's meditation that's yeah. it and uh, it's something I've found to be transformative uh, for managing the multiple stresses of uh, particularly business and startup. And keeping a clear head at the times when it feels like the house is on fire. Um, so the, the challenge is people think meditation is weird or people think meditation is for hippie nutters or people think meditation is difficult. And uh, it's not. You don't need to learn how to do it. It's literally sit comfortably, ideally without your back supported. You don't have to sit cross-legged, get the lotus position. Or sit in a straight back chair or in a chair somewhere. Sit up straight, get your feet on the floor, put your hands on your legs. Uh, close your eyes, relax, and just focus on your breathing. Do it for two minutes. That's it. That is meditation. You will focus on your breathing. Your mind will wander off. You don't get annoyed. You don't get fed up. You simply go, ah, right, I've got distracted. Don't judge it. Come back to the breathing. Do that for two minutes. Some people will at the end of this go, well, that is a load of nonsense. I have no interest. And other people might go, well, maybe this meditation thing can help. You know, the benefits have been highly scientifically proven. Um, and I, I've found it really, really useful. If anyone's out there struggling with keeping a clear head and getting their startup going, I'm not saying this is going to turn it around, but it's another useful tool to have in your arsenal, definitely. No, I love it. And you know, when I, when I was at uh, a university undergrad, we had a course, um, and it was all on holistic health, and from breathing patterns to progressive tension practices to meditation and everything in between. I learned like probably five practices that I've, I've put in the last 13 years clients through, um, on day, you know, I've worked with, with athletes and, and recreational athletes for, for th- 12, 13 years and days when, when people will come in and you just see in their eyes that they are not engaged, they're worn out. Um, we would do a meditation or we do uh, a tension regression exercise or we do a breathing exercise that they might not be, be used to. And the meditation thing, it's it's simple. Like you said, you focus on a thing. It can be your breathing, it can be a word, and you just keep keep coming back to it whenever you get distracted. And you're gonna, it does feel better. I I, I do it myself. Um, 
you know, you, you can't really measure how it helps you, but you can feel how, how it helps you on a regular basis. And that's the best I can say. It's kind of like, you know, I do a lot of interviews and the days that I don't get good sleep, I can feel my vocabulary leaving me. And, uh, I think, <laughs> I think meditation and, and things that help you become more restful and, and relaxed, bring those, those deepest thoughts and your vocabulary back to you and, and the clear headedness that you need to be productive. That's, that's how I explain it, but that's great. I like that. Um, all right, last one, a book. Do you have a good book? I do. And I have, I have just put it down, uh, without resorting to the cliche of book reviewers everywhere. It was not unput downable. Like I could physically put it down. I didn't want to, but I could. Um, and it's by the, uh, British ultra runner, Lizzie Hawker, L I Z Z Y Hawker, H A W K E R. Uh, if you're seriously into ultras, I'm sure you'll have heard of her. Uh, if you're not, but you're interested in endurance or simply, uh, perseverance against the odds and making an uncommon life for yourself. Her most recent book, well, she's, I think she's only written one. It's called Runner, um, a short story about a long run by Lizzie Hawker. And just, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's a beautiful exploration of human endurance. I mean, her her achievements, I think she, she came third overall at Sparta, the uh, Spartan, not Spartan race, uh, Spartathlon. That's the massive ultra in Greece, if I've got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the Yelch Trail de Mont Blanc, the, uh, the biggest uh, headlining 100-mile, it's actually 103-mile ultra in Europe, uh, she's won that five times, I think. Um, such a, I mean, she, she's uh, very unassuming, very quiet, carries no ego, and just, it's such a raw book. It's, it's a beautiful read and, and a great exploration of sort of, humanity and endurance put together it's, it's really nice 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 yeah i have not i've not read that one so i have to check it out all right so warren uh you know you went through um these very distinct stages of life which you shared with us which is really cool um but along the way during during a lot of your running stuff um you you found something that needed some fixing so you put your entrepreneur shoes on and uh, and dove in literally he- head first and, <laughs> and started a company which I've I've done uh, with a handful of projects online and otherwise it's exciting it's scary it's a lot of work and not any single day um, feels like the last and that's usually not the best thing in the world um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about take a couple minutes tell us about thirty three shake. Um, you guys can check it out, 33shake.com. Warren uh, sent me some of the product. I loved it. I love chia seeds, first of all. So um, that was an easy sell because I did like them. I liked the texture. But why don't you talk about um, just the genesis, the story of of this company, and, and we'll let pe- we'll end we'll, with uh, letting people go check it out. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, the I mean, the, the genesis comes from uh, – it's a combination of, of running ultras, and, and I, I began writing more about the, the ultra-endurance side of things for, for some of the newspapers in the UK in my, my freelance career as, as that took off alongside my, my running. And um, as you do that, a lot of nutrition companies are very keen to give you samples. So you've got plenty of access to their nutritionists. You've got plenty of access to their product. It all turns up free in nice boxes with your names on it. Um, so I had a lot of sports nutrition. Uh, I spoke to a lot of experts. 
and I felt horrible most of the time I was running using these products. They, they tasted foul. They made me want to throw up. My energy levels were all over the place. And worse than that, I became really sickeningly dependent on a, a huge amount of product to run relatively short distances. I, I was completely burning sugar and nothing else. Um, so three years of research. Uh, every time I, I'd meet these sports nutritionists, I'd always be asking, you know, I have this problem, my energy's not stable, da da da. And they'd always say, well, you need to do, you know, you need to take more, you need to train your stomach, you need to do this. I say, but I feel sick. They know, no, you've just got to train your stomach. We've got a new product. Try this. It would be in a different packet. I'd experience the same result. Similarly, the journalism is opening doors to elite athletes in the endurance world, and I'm asking them whether it's relevant to the interview or not. At some point in the conversations I would have with them, I'd say, what do you eat? And they would say, well, you know, uh, they would be, all of them, prioritizing a nutrient-dense, natural, whole food diet that's low in sugar and processed foods. Um, and I, I look at that and I go, okay, well, I get it. That diet is the foundation of performance. And then I look at all this sports nutrition. And I'm like, well, I get why this makes me feel sick because it's processed, sugary crap. It's, it's nothing, nothing different. But it's then, it takes another, this is three years into the journey, I I meet a a German Paralympian during a job, and I'm asking him, he's a Paralympic cyclist, and I ask him about stable energy and stuff like that, and he says, you know, he's talking about five-hour training rides, and I say, well, what would you eat? And he said, well, on on most of them, I wouldn't eat anything. And for me, the guy who really could struggle to run to the end of the road without taking two gels and and a bar, um... This was a revelation, and that's where he, he opened my eyes to the idea that the body has two sets of fuel. We, we can burn fat, and we can burn carbohydrate. Now, three years of asking apparently the most qualified sports nutritionists that the UK has to offer through the biggest companies making this stuff, not one of them had given me the idea that we have uh, two tanks of fuel, one of carbs and one of fat. They'd all told me about the carb tank and how it has to be topped up. They hadn't told me about the fat tank and how that can power us for 24 hours or more and how if we eat too much sugary stuff, we can't even access it in the first place. Um, it, it, was, it was the beginning of a realization that I felt uh, the wool had been hugely pulled over my eyes and I'd been given half the story um, because that was convenient to the products they were selling. Um, and none of that matters if those products work, but the more people I spoke to in the endurance community – I was not alone by any stretch. I, I, you know, it, it was the unusual person who didn't have stomach trouble, unstable energy, uh, or, or more illness and colds during a year than they should have um, when they were training hard. I just looked at all this, and it, it was wrong. So the, the aim was, okay, first of all, I dropped these products from my diet, and, and things improved. Then I was like, well, what do I start and replace it with? And uh, chia seeds, obviously, that comes up in Chris McDougall's Born to Run. And as we're building this idea of what's next between uh, myself, my wife, who's, who's also uh, an athlete and one of the company's co-founders, and our third co-founder who had spent uh, 10 years studying superfoods, he was the one who came in. We, you know, My wife and I, Erica, we were looking at how do we bridge this gap? What are the natural alternatives? Chia seeds are looking good, but we had some terrible, terrible experiences with trying to get it to work. Uh, and then we, uh, we met this guy, Dan, and he came in, and he, he bridged that knowledge gap that we didn't have of how to use the right superfoods the right way and, and to put it together uh, in a formula 
that would work. And, and that's the genesis of what is our 33 shake cheer energy gel. Um, and the biggest thing about it, uh, is that the cheer is kept whole. The gel is re, it's not rehydratable. It's hydratable. So you add water to it. It turns into a gel in the packet. Then it's, uh, 10 minutes and it's ready to go. It lasts for 24 hours. That allows us to keep all of the goodness in the cheer. When you grind it and process it, you lose most of the good nutrients because they're contained in the oils in the shell. That with the other natural ingredients we blended it with, created what we believe is is the ultimate gel for endurance and the first one that doesn't give you stomach trouble and uh, doesn't make you feel sick and doesn't wreck your ability to burn fat and gives you a broad spectrum of whole food-based, you know, genuine nutrients rather than some processed, foul, chemically gunk. Um, and if people don't believe us, we got a 100% money-back guarantee. It's the only way we could operate. Awesome, Warren. I, I love the story. And from any business, from any startup, the, the way, the how, and all of those stories, um, they're bigger than, than, than this, this type of show. But I'd like to say for people listening, um, I, I got in touch with, with uh, Warren through Luke. He sent me some product, and uh, I really liked it. Athlete on Fire, you guys who are listening, it's more of a general audience. We have athletes of all backgrounds. So I wanted to I wanted to do a trial with these guys, and we're gonna we're doing it over at Becoming Ultra. You guys hear most of those podcasts on the Athlete on Fire show, but if you go over to Becoming Ultra, these guys uh, Warren's going to talk about Thirty Three Shake for about ten or fifteen minutes, and we're gonna do uh, we're just gonna do some storytelling um, between companies, Athlete on Fire, Becoming Ultra, Thirty Three Shake. We have some other brands that are coming on board that kind of believe in what we're doing, and we believe in what they're doing. And uh, we're just kind of all working as these small startups um, that just want to build things we believe in. And uh, go over there. We'll have some contests. We'll have some things on social media. We're going to be giving away some of uh, some of the product for you guys to try. It's definitely different. A gel that you have to add water to, let it set for a few minutes, and, and then consume is different. But it's really, really good. It tastes like food, which is cool. It doesn't. I don't have to choke it down. Like I don't need a chaser. It's not like drinking a tequila back in my college days i don't need to i don't need to throw down some orange juice afterwards so i'm I'm all for it so warren thanks for sharing that story and thanks for coming on and, and sharing your whole story i know you have there's so much to your story from from your cycling your motorbike your motorbiking your um your uh your journalism your running there's so much we could go over but i appreciate what you did share today great insights and uh thanks a lot hey scott thanks i've really really enjoyed it it's been uh it's been great to talk through, and uh, thanks for being such a good navigator. I mean, uh, I didn't even know I had those stories in me. <laughs> sweet, sweet. All right, from a journalist, I will take that as a compliment. So anybody else listening, you guys you guys were inspired by Warren Pohl, who is absolutely an athlete on fire. Thank you so much. And remember, I am, you are, everyone's an athlete. So uh, go train for something. Thank you for listening to Athlete on Fire. Stay fired up with additional resources and information at athleteonfire.com.